We'll open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. The book of James, chapter 3, will be in verse 13 through the third verse of chapter 4 this morning. What are you good at making? You folks are good at doing all kinds of things, making all kinds of things. Uh, For some of you, it's food. For some of you, us, it's not food. For some of you, it's, it's music. We have such exceptionally talented musicians. Put another way, we are so gifted as a church by the Lord with such capable and skilled musicians. You know that. And artists. You might know that the baptistry behind me, on baptism Sundays, there you can see the water. You might wonder, well, how could that be? Because there's no glass. No, there's a fake piece of rock up there, you see. You see the rocks? That was one of you did all the rocks many years ago, and then another one of you did the little fake rocks that goes in front of the glass. Uh, Arts. Some of you are good at making money. You understand markets and how people work, and you're just wise in your your dealings. Others of you are, are good at making decisions. I asked an executive type in our church this morning, what are you good at making? He just looked at me. And I said, decisions. And he goes, yeah, decisions. So that's it. <laughs> he doesn't make anything except decisions for the rest of us that allow us to make the most of our work in our lives. Well, we don't all have to be good at making all those things. We do need people that are good at all or most of those things. How are you doing at making peace? How are you doing at peacemaking? How are we doing at peacemaking? James will help us evaluate ourselves, but also get about making peace in today's text, James 3, verse 13 through 4, verse 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And this is God's word for us this morning. Well, if we're going to make peace here on earth, among ourselves, we are going to need wisdom from heaven in order to do so. And this passage here gives us just what we need. Peace. That's an important word. I wanted it to be in the title. I could have just as well titled this sermon, Two Kinds of Wisdom. Um, James's whole passage is structured along a contrast. He moves back and forth between two kinds of wisdom and its fruits and its effects. But I wanted peace in the title, because that's the goal of this kind of wisdom. It's it's how you know you've got this kind of wisdom, and it's why he's talking about it, because these churches are having trouble with peace. They're characterized instead by quarreling and dissensions and fights of all things. So James, a peacemaker himself, several times recorded in the book of Acts, James is right there to help reason between parties and bring about peace. He's a peacemaking brother. And he's there writing this letter to 
peacemake. This whole letter is an exercise in peacemaking. And it doesn't mean not ruffling feathers, and it doesn't mean hiding from controversy. He kind of runs into it. If you've ever led anything, you'll know that it doesn't do anyone any good, and it's no good for real peace or any kind of lasting state of peace to hide from trouble or fudge on truth. Oh, James barrels right into it. He's not afraid of making trouble in the, the, the Christian sense of making trouble. No, he's, he's making peace in his, his letter and he's doing it quite well as a peacemaker himself. Peace. Shalom. Uh, peace in the Old Testament. Um, health. Wholeness, integrity, that's what peace would capture. Uh, Baked right into the name of the city for God's king, Jerusalem. Peace, the Prince of Peace, the name of the Messiah that would come and turn back the curse. Peace is no small theme in the Scriptures, and peace marks God's people when God's people are indwelt by and submitted to God's Holy Spirit. Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said on His Sermon on the Mount, for they shall be called sons of God. Oh, peacemakers are precious to God. They reflect His very nature. They reflect His loves. They are about His work. Jesus later in the Sermon on the Mount, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What a privilege it is to be called a son of God. And And one way that you know that you are is that you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you and you you make peace. Certainly, among your brothers and sisters in the church, we are to be peacemakers. Every one. Joe Rogan recently, um, on his podcast, I don't even know what you would call it, it's hours long, it needs a different kind of name at that point. Pod just seems a little too small. How complex the human mind is and life and society is. He's just riffing, so this will be a little loose. And yet there's no real management book for it. No document that shows you that these are the optimal ways to exist and these are the pitfalls to living in other ways. You have these human reward systems and they can be hijacked by various things. This is the way the human body exists and mind exists optimally. Wouldn't it be nice to hear that in a manual of some kind? For whatever reason, there's no real structure people can follow that is universally agreed upon. Say, if you're a mechanic and you're working on an engine, there's a clear documentation available to you that show you these are the pistons and here's the spark plug and there's the carburetor and if it's not clean, you have this problem and there's the gas line and do these things and then... Room starts up and it works. You can fix things and build things that way. And yet, we don't really have that for the most complex thing we're aware of, which is human existence. And, you know, there were little replies on the internet, bro, the Bible. And fair enough, you know, the Christian would have thought that. Um, But it's just a reminder to us that Everyone around us knows, and we all know way deep down, we've got ourselves some serious problems. The machine is not working. We are not good at operating it. Relationships, our own self, our own tongue, as we talked about last week. And thank God we actually do arrive in friendships with people like Joe, if you were to know a Joe, uh, with an answer and with a book. And it's more than just instructions, but it isn't less than that. Where God reveals His nature to us, our purpose, what we're for. And He better than tells us how to 
make relationships work. He unites us with Himself through His Son Jesus and brings us into His own heavenly communion so that we are so set right that we can set relationships here, our little measly relationships down here on earth right. It's amazing that we have this book and it's wonderful and right that we sit under its preaching every week so that we might know our Lord better in communion with Him so that we also might know how we are to go about living faithfully according to the calling with which we've been called. Worthy even of that calling. So that's what we're about today. Uh, Getting better at peacemaking. Something to feel, something to understand, something to do, and something to look forward to. It's our outline today. Something to feel. Peacemakers feel the horror of war. The horror of war. James was careful to pick his images. He was not haphazard in their selection. He used that imagery of a fire last week. The tongue is like a fire. It's small, but its influence is out of proportion to its size, as well as its devastating effects when it is set loose apart from control by means of God's grace. Uh, a salt water stream or spring and a freshwater spring. Helpful in helping us see that what comes out of our mouth reflects the source from which it came. James is great with imagery. And so we settle on these images. And this morning we have the image of war in verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at, at war within you? A choice image. War. Armed and violent conflict, typically between states or nations, excuse me, or groups within nations. Arising from a conflict of visions and a conflict of ambitions, a clash of civilizations. We'll know that figuring out what to do on any one side of war is getting in the head of the opposing group to understand what it is they are trying to get so that you might know what will work to stop them. James is not aloof to the horrors of war. We're not aloof these days to the horrors of war either. We can grow complacent, and it seems that in our own country we have grown complacent in years past. Let enough years go by and we'll think we can engineer utopia. We're just only so far away. Everything could be so great if we'd just fiddle with this dial and move this money over there and stop those people from saying and doing that. Now The world is an armed camp. I don't have to speak to you in detail about What's happening between Russia and Ukraine or Hamas's atrocities in previous weeks? Oh, this is a good place to live with all of its faults. And of course, at a human plane, it's not guaranteed forever. But it is nice to be on two, in the middle of two oceans and at least between Mexico and Canada. Well, the world is an armed camp. James was not aloof to the horrors of war when he picked that word. So just sit on that for a minute. James is referring to the interactions and the quarrels between members identified with these churches as war. With the imagery of brutality and of attack and of violence and of armed conflict arising from competing visions and evidencing a conflict of ambitions. It's a good word. And we need to feel the horror 
of church conflict, when it is marked by sin, I'll address matters of differences later. There's a way to manage differences. But church conflict owing to tongues that sparked fires, in this case of this church, believers presumably dragging other believers off to court to manipulate them out of their land, the rich as a class, generally in that place and day, praying upon and abusing the poor. I don't think that's the case generally of, of the more wealthy in our own day and place. It's a different world, but there are plenty for whom that's the case. War. Peacemakers feel the horror of it. Peacemakers also understand how relationships work. They're skilled in understanding how relationships work. There's more to it than understanding, but they have understanding and they have insight, wisdom into these things. And they operate according to it. Wisdom, as we'll see, isn't just about a way of seeing. It's minimally a way of seeing, but it is also... And it is not actually biblical wisdom unless it includes a way of being and a way of being together, a way of relating. They speak of the fog of war. It can be hard to know where you're at and what is happening and where the, the fire is coming from and where that bullet came from and urban warfare apparently. It can be all the more um, uh, disorienting with the ricocheting sounds and hiding places. There's a fog of war really at every level of war. But there can be places from which you can see the big picture, either in terms of the geography of a battlefield or far away in terms of the strategy. And James is going to help us out this morning. James makes it clean. James makes it clear. James clears the fog in our own minds. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody directly or in your own head against them and you wonder how did we get here and how do we get out everything I imagine myself saying will only make it worse and sometimes try as we may uh, we cannot make it better it doesn't entirely depend on us but you know what I mean it's Christmas lights everything you pull on makes it worse uh, I think that I've thrown a bundle away before and thought it's worth 12 bucks to buy new ones and felt a little bit bad about that, but it wasn't worth my time. And, um, and support local businesses, right? Buy Christmas lights every year. Just put them away real nice. Don't do that to yourself. But your arguments can feel like that. And, and even in church life, if we, if we let ourselves go, folks... We let ourselves talk in cruel and suspicious ways about each other. This group, that group, that person, that leader, that member. And throwing shade becomes a normal thing. We don't feel the horror of it anymore. We're callous to it. Well, it's a matter of time before it's just disorder and chaos in a church. And you're not sure where, what thought or idea came from. James helps us out. Peacemakers understand how relationships work. I'll try to capture what he's doing here uh, with three levels. I said there's a contrast he's offering between two kinds of wisdom, but then there's two kinds of wisdom, one from above and one from below, but then for each of those, there are three levels. So if you're good at making spreadsheets... I just made one for you. You can imagine that, right? You've got wisdom from above, wisdom from below, and three levels. There you go. There's your spreadsheet. You ready? Three levels. At the first level, there is a conflict between people. At a second level down now, there is, there is a conflict within people which explains the concept, conflict between people. And a third level down, there is a conflict between people and God. 
And we've said before, even in our series titled Undivided, where James is preaching and writing that we would be whole and complete, that there are divisions between us that reveal divisions within us that ultimately reveal a division between us and God. And the language of conflict here is just another way of putting that. Or think of the agricultural imagery here. Jesus said, we're known by our fruits. So you have the root level, the fruit level, and then shall we say the effect or the result level. So if you eat a fruit and it's a rotten fruit, well, the fruit was rotten and now it's having its effect on you. And if the fruit is rotten, it likely points to a problem in the trunk or the root of that poisoned, rotten tree or plant. Root level, fruit level, and then the effect in the eating. Or conflict between people, moving down now, and conflict within the people themselves. And at the root, a conflict or division between them and God. So like a good doctor... James has been diagnosing our problems and he's helping us with our conflict. He's helping us know how to unstring those Christmas lights we all need help with. Well, we'll examine now the whole of the passage and spend most of our time under this second header. We're going to look at their experience as a church to see these three levels. And then we're going to look at James's explanation in which he is contrasting these two forms of wisdom at three levels. I'm going to say two forms of wisdom and three levels, maybe a dozen more times so that we can all leave catechized and next time we're in an argument in our head or with somebody or it's time to apologize, we'll, we'll know how to articulate ourselves because we'll know how to see our way through it, the fog of war. Let's look at their experience. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Let's give them credit for wanting to know. Um, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That could be translated just as well. There are warring passions between people. I see no reason why it can't actually speak to both, because both are true and both are in the text otherwise. That there, are, that there are conflicting passions. Remember, it's our own desires dra- entice and drag us away. And having known that, because James tells us, well, that assumes that we have desired not to be enticed and dragged away by our own desires. We are, even if in Christ, nevertheless, conflicted people. And that we still sin. And we wrestle and we stumble and we struggle. And James is helping us. To feed the right beast, not to struggle, not to be lured and enticed and dragged away. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Okay, now he elaborates a little bit, verse 2 in chapter 4. You desire and do not have, so you murder. I don't think that they were strangling each other to death, uh, bludgeoning each other with rocks. I don't think that actual killing, murder, was the problem among these churches. I guess it's not out of question that that would be in the the story of these churches between them. I I think that has to be the case. Uh, Anger in our heart is, is murder. It's where murder comes from, Jesus would preach in the Sermon on the Mount. You desire and you do not have... And so you murder. That's, of course, an inordinate desire or a desire that's too strong for something good that it overwhelms other goods so that we now take the good life of a person because we'd rather have them not here at all than in our way of what we want. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. So the fighting and the quarreling is because of the inward fruit, the bad fruit, the rotten fruit in the heart of covetousness that is never satisfied. It's not just that they covet, and in their specific instance, they can't obtain. It's the nature of the sin of covetousness. Even if you get what you want, you didn't really get what you were after. 
And then a level down, the root. You do not have because you do not ask. Remember, he told them as they go through trials to count it all joy. And where that seems hard, ask God for wisdom because he generously gives to all who, who ask. But he says, you do not have because you, you do not ask. And you do not ask. You, excuse me, you ask and you do not receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So whatever in this case they're asking for of God, God isn't answering these prayers because they ask wrongly. They don't ask for God's sake or for their own ultimate good in light of the word of God or the good of their neighbor or church, but to spend it on their passions. They're going to God as some genie. What a sick way to pray. Uh, Pray to God, but mind your motives. Don't obsess too much. We're sinners. Our motives are mixed. But mind your motives. Um, Why are you asking for this or for that? To spend it on your passions? Be careful about that. You ask and you do not receive. That you don't receive may be an indication that you're asking for something absurd or at least for an absurd reason in light of heaven. Now sit under enough preaching and read enough of God's word and you'll have a fine sense of this, not even to ask for things so wrongly and for such a wrong reason. But mind your motives and mind your asking. My point in this second half of verse 2 and verse 3 is to show you that third level down, the root level, that level of a conflict between us and God. Look at chapter 4, verse 4 now. You'll see where we're headed next week. You adulterous people are his next words. As in, for those who are his concern in in this hearing, he's saying they've committed spiritual adultery against their Lord. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scriptures says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And of course, this great encouragement that he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, be warned, but he gives grace to the humble. And submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, next week we get to this matter in a focused way underneath our, our conflicts and divisions between us and Underneath the conflict and division within us, it's really a conflict and a division between us and God. And for this church, it had gotten good and bad. I guess I mean good in the bad sense. It had gotten real bad. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, he ends his letter, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. You can wander far enough away in sin that you are just gone. But if you're here, you're not too far gone. And if someone's on your mind today, they're not too far gone. As long as Jesus hasn't come, there is time to save a sinner from death and to bring them back a wanderer. Oh, you adulterous people. Point is, is that under these divisions is our relationship with God. And so when we come here on Sunday mornings, we come to commune with the God of heaven through his son and by the spirit. We're not just coming for instructions for how to have good relationships. That would be to miss the point. That would be to miss the power source for good relationships anyways. There's no help for our church in coming together each Lord's Day to get some instructions on how to navigate our difficulties if we do so apart from a vital relationship with the one true and living God. And so preaching isn't just, here's how to get along and great tips for doing so. There are plenty in here. James is giving them to us. But they are fraught through. They are woven through with concern for our relationship with the one true and living God. And isn't it great that we don't have to stay spiritual adulterers or enemies of God 
but he is giving grace so that we can be his friend, so that we can be found faithful to him as he is faithful to us, so that the things that we've broken and the relationships that are tattered can be restored in your marriage in this church. If God can reconcile through his son sinners to himself, then he is good and able by his grace to reconcile sinners to one another. And we're here this morning because we believe that. Humbly, we believe that. We come as people who do not show up with all the answers, keeping all of his commands perfectly, but we show up as those at our best. We're humbling ourselves before the living God, that we might be his friend, that we might receive his grace, that we might be ever restored to walk with him, that we might walk well with one another. Three levels, the effects, the fruits in the heart of the root, which is our relationship with God. This little section, verse, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, you desire and don't have, you covet and you cannot obtain, you do not have because you do not ask. He's addressing them very personally. And I don't know for you personally what questions I might ask of you. But we can do this with each other when we're with each other. Um, talking about our lives and troubles and struggles and relationships. We don't have to just listen to each other grumble and gripe and complain. We can interpret one another's troubles in light of the word of God as James does here for his readers. Humbly, of course, and carefully and thoughtfully and not haphazardly. But we can talk like this to our brothers and sisters. And we should with our closest friends. In gentleness and reasonableness, as James does with his readers. Now let's move on to James's explanation. Or I should say, move back up in his paragraph, his section, to James's explanation. Two kinds of wisdom. There's one kind of wisdom which brings divisiveness, with the effect of divisiveness. And there's another kind of wisdom that brings a harvest of righteousness. One that brings divisiveness, one that brings a harvest of righteousness. And we're going to spend most of our time now pondering these two kinds of wisdom. First, there's wisdom from below. He speaks in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. So I'm calling it wisdom from below. What is the root of that kind of wisdom? What is its origin, in other words? Well, he says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, warning, the rest of the passage is full of lists like this. And so the sermon may feel a little bit like that, like word and a little bit of interpretation, word and a little bit of that. This is a, a, a walking meditation through a handful of lists that James has given us. Apparently, we needed all these words. Wisdom from below is earthly, which is to say that its goals and its ambition, its ambitions and its approaches to relationships are bound to the earth and the horizon does not raise higher than the earth. It's, it's going about relationships like this without respect to God or heaven or eternity. It's, it's an earthly form of wisdom that only takes into consideration in its goals and approaches this earth and age. This kind of wisdom from below is unspiritual. I think that means that it has to do with the body in this life. Each of these terms are overlapping to an extent rather than the soul, the spirit, and what is invisible and eternal about us. Certainly it has to mean that it, it's a wisdom without respect to God's spirit and the, the word that God's spirit inspired. It is, it's dead. It's not animated by the spirit. It's a dead kind of wisdom, an earthly kind of wisdom. And it's also demonic. And let's give James credit for saying it. 
I said earlier that he's not afraid of a hard word or to ruffle feathers. He just said that their quarrels and arguments are demonic. (laughs) If you're hearing him and you're in a fight in one of these churches, he just said your conflict is an evidence of the work of demons. Ouch. I do not want to hear that from anybody ever. Uh, I'd rather hear it's just the work of me or it's the work of earthly wisdom. Well, let's spice it up and get their attention. It's demonic. Really, earthly and unspiritual should get our attention enough. And maybe demonic would have just fallen off the bone for him. But at least for our modern ears, that does get my attention. What it means is that it can be that in our small and large conflicts as a church, to the extent that we do not manage ourselves with godliness and mind our tongues, the classic lists of gossip and slander and malice, we are operating as demons, at the pleasure of demons. Satan himself Doesn't James say a few verses later, resist the devil? Doesn't all of this actually go back to the very beginning of the Bible when the serpent crept into the garden and tempted Eve to doubt the goodness of God, to take from the fruit and her husband with her, then Adam watching it all happen, and the two of them banished from the garden, but not without blaming each other for it. And the snake after each other. No, all this goes back to Satan and his designs. And we're not to blame our sins on Satan as though our desires aren't within us. And that temptations don't arise from within us and lure and drag us away. James doesn't let us off the hook by speaking of demons and Satan. But nevertheless, we can talk in those terms. That our divisions sometimes are a matter of reasonable difference of perspective that need to be worked out, and there's a way to do that. But when not worked out the right way, can make room for the devil in a church? Demonic. Don't forget that word. Use that word when you think you need to. It's not just that this kind of wisdom is apart from God. It is that this kind of wisdom is personally against God. God opposes the proud because the proud are against Him. And as it's against God, it's also against us. So this is wisdom from below. And that is the root of wisdom from below. Now let's ponder the fruit Second half of verse 16, where where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So jealousy and selfish ambition. Jealousy, that same word we use for zeal, can be a positive thing. Some of us are excited about what we do for work, or we're excited about our family, or excited about our church. There's all good things to be zealous for. But it's possible to be zealous for something that is forbidden, to want something that is from that somebody else's, to seek to take it from them or take them out of the picture so that you can have what they have. Uh, bitter jealousy, he calls it a few verses earlier. Jealousy and selfish ambition. Remember, James himself understands this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, the different James, by the way, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Different James, same sinful root, expressing a sinful fruit. Ambition to be first in the kingdom. Oh, how, 
how sin can be that sneaky. It can couch itself in all kinds of spiritual garb. I mean, how bad could it be to want to be first in God's kingdom? That's not speaking and that's not thinking in earthly terms. That's not a worldly thought, is it? Well, it can be a worldly thought. It was in those terms. They didn't conceive of the kingdom quite right as it is. My point is we have not only commands about this, but real life examples. As Jesus was preaching and teaching, so the people in front of him were, were connecting the dots. And Jesus offered, obviously, a, a, a shrewd corrective for them on that journey. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every kind of vile practice. Jealousy and selfish ambition With the effect now, moving from root to the fruit in the heart of jealousy and selfish ambition, now you're going to eat that fruit. And what do you get when it works its way out into life? Disorder and every kind of vile practice. He doesn't need to list them. They, they all connect. It's one thing after another. You ever found that your sin is this way? There was the little sin, and then you were asked about it, and then you weren't straight, and then this, and then this other thing, and now we're, now we're, we're way down the road. Maybe that's your whole life. That's why you're, maybe that's why you're here at church, to try to do something about that. And oh, Jesus, and going to the cross and taking our sin for us has done something about all our many layered layers of sins that we can't undo Nevertheless, they can be taken away from us in terms of their guilt. How good is our Lord to die for sinners, a shepherd to lay his life down for sheep. He lays his life down for sheep. Also, his enemies. You and me, he's praying for his enemies on the cross. He takes our sins away. But you know what I mean when I say one thing after another. One sin leads to Another, the root, the fruit, and the effects in disorder of every kind and every vile practice. And really, a contrast here between pride and humility. We'll get into humility in a bit. Isaiah 5.21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And on the lips of the prophet Hosea, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. There is wisdom that is true wisdom, and there is wisdom that is false to the truth. Let us not be false to the truth. We've been exploring wisdom from below. Now, let's explore wisdom from above. But, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, the root here is above. Where is this kind of where is this kind of wisdom from? What is its root? Well, its root is in heaven. Uh, it's spiritual. Uh, its root is in the spirit. Uh, its root is divine. It's from God. And not only is this kind of wisdom from God, but it is also for us, for our, for our good. And its fruit, verse 17, at first, it's pure, which is to say it's undivided. It's not it's not mixed in its intentions, for God is not mixed in his intentions for us. It's peaceable or peace-loving, which is to say that when we reflect this kind of wisdom, we aren't keeping peace merely pragmatically because we would rather not have trouble, but we actually love peace and pursue it together. It's gentle. It commends the truth in the way it engages James doesn't sound gentle. 
Apparently, strong words are not incompatible with gentleness when apparently appropriate. Nevertheless, it's not looking to grind an axe or to get right. Are you the kind of person that as soon as another sins against you, you're all enraged and feeling justified and being angry and speaking harsh words? The easiest against those that are closest with us, of course. Because, of course, they sinned against you. Now it's gentle even when provoked. Open to reason. And this is important. Because, because wisdom from above that is gentle and peace-loving does not bracket truth as a priority, but it seeks truth. Um, open to reason, which is to say that this kind of wisdom and the kind of peace that it brings is a peace that is coherent with truth. It is born of truth. It cares about the truth. Jesus, of course, is the way and the truth and the life, and you and I are not. And so it just makes sense, does it not, in our pursuit of peace, that we would humble ourselves to be open to the idea that we might be wrong. And I have to say that out loud sometimes. I really might be wrong. How do I know? Well, I have been wrong before, and I have been shocked at times that I have been wrong. So it's good to say, well, I can't see it any other way, but I ought to talk to them, and I ought to ask some questions, because how embarrassing is it when you're wrong? Then you're tempted to dig in, like not even to believe the obvious truth when it's in front of you. No, be open to reason in the pursuit of truth, because we want a peace based on truth. It shows mercy. It has a, a basic understanding and compassion for those who are suffering in the circumstances that led them into the place that they are at. It's impartial. It's not divided in its own intentions. And it also doesn't make divisions among people and treat them differently based on worldly value calculations. We've talked about that before. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Not hypocritical, but genuine all the way down. That's a passage to memorize. That's something to pray toward. To ask God for the kind of wisdom so that you might see clearly and you might live in this, this fashion. The root, the fruit, and the effects. Verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wisdom from above forms inside of us with effects that reach into every relationship we have on earth. And it's, of course, more than just understanding how relationships work, but it's about getting to work on relationships, which is our third point here, that peacemakers get to work on relationships. Those who make peace, peace is made. It is worked for. It is sown. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace, which is an agricultural image that entails time and patience. And when I say peacemakers get to work, I mean they work hard on relationships let us work hard on relationships, but also that it's a privilege that we get to do this. God employs average Christians and average church members without titles or assignments around here or without notoriety around here, without much tenure around here. He employs average Christians, average church members in the miraculous work of making peace between sinners. He is a peacemaker. He brings about peace between himself and us through the Prince of Peace, the Son. And by the Spirit, he empowers us and equips us and stirs us to make peace with one another. Which doesn't mean that we always agree. Sometimes we have to reason with one another and persuade one another and find our way forward with differences. All of that is assumed here. 
Sometimes we will sin against each other and that will happen and we will be ready to show mercy and to be patient with one another and to understand one another, all of that. To humbly acknowledge our selfish ambition and humbly acknowledge our jealousy and to use words like that. Not going to get very far in making peace in your relationships if you can't say, I fill in the blank. If it's always you and you and you and you. Did you contribute nothing? Maybe. I don't know. I guess I'd have to get up close enough. But often enough, there is something for us to confess. And often enough, really, we're the only one who needs to be confessing something in a relationship, and we need forgiveness. Humble yourselves before God so you may humble yourselves before one another. And let us all be good at getting to work on relationships. And finally, peacemakers enjoy the taste of heaven in the fruit of their labors. A harvest is sown in peace by those who make peace. Last week we had that sermon on the tongue. Listen to how the writer of Proverbs described a godly tongue. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He's satisfied by the yield of his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. And a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And the lips of the righteous, here's the overflow of bounty in a harvest. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. No, friends, this is a church where we are saved by the grace of God through the Son of God and equipped by the Spirit of God to make peace with one another. And you may be good at making this or that, but friends, let all of us be good at making peace. If we are going to do this humanly impossible work of making peace with one another here in this community of this church on earth, then we are going to need wisdom from heaven And thank God we have plenty of it. We even have peace himself in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have brought, you have sent peace. You've sent your son to bring peace and that he gives peace to his people. And we stumble in many ways, and we struggle with peace with one another, and we are tempted and often lured and enticed by our own sins to say this and to think that. And some of us, if we're honest, even we aren't peace-loving, but we actually love a controversy measured by how much we talk about other people's faults. Even in word counts, we find ourselves stirring about and loving controversy and division. Even a little unhappy when things seem to be going well. Oh, Father, we confess our great need for your help and your grace, and we humble ourselves to receive with meekness this wisdom you've given to us in the Word. Receive the implanted Word. We pray that it would grow among us. As we turn now to the Lord's table, we pray that you would bless us with a sense of your presence among us by your spirit as we commune with your son, as we gather around this table for a meal together. May we remember that you're a God who seeks adulterous people for close personal fellowship, even friendship in Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.